0: Good afternoon. It's a delight to be back again, and I want to thank the cathedral and your dean for wonderful hospitality and the kind invitation to be here. Part two's passage is from the 21st chapter of the gospel according to St. Matthew. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The word of the Lord. The name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Some years ago I got a doctorate in theology and the end of that process involves writing a one-page summary of what it is you want to say. My wife saw that sheet of paper the next day and she said to me, let me get this straight, we're going to spend two years and you're going to write 300 pages to say what you're able to say on one page in three minutes. She clearly wasn't in the spirit of academic work. My point being that I'm about to give you the short version recap in 30 seconds of what I said in 20 minutes yesterday. And it goes like this. Anger surprises us in its disproportion. And it makes us mysteries to ourselves. Explanations do not suffice. At its root, our anger is an echo of the fall. An occasion for our saying no to God's creation in his freedom and our limitation. But even anger, distorted as it is, reminds us of something that does lie within God's intention. A figure lurks behind much of what I said yesterday about anger and it is the same figure who is in a great deal of our own cultural worldview, I have in mind Sigmund Freud. Early in his career, Freud assumed that a single juice ran through the whole universe, which he called the erotic. The life force to be found wherever humans fight or mate or negotiate or build. But at the end of his life, As both his cancer and the Nazi menace advanced. Freud came to a darker view. There are two forces in the universe. He called them the life force and the death force. Two forces in our lives, two pagan gods which want us to serve. The death drive for Freud was a deep desire in us to reverse what is. But it is not so with the true God. A projection of ourselves on some vast screen is precisely what God is not, in spite of what you might figure if you listen to a great deal of modern theology and modern church life. God is one, and this means that his qualities Perfect justice, holiness, love, self surrender, they are also one. They are not parts of God and cannot be separated ultimately one from another. They all help us to have some grasp of the divine nature, but God exceeds us, He exceeds all of our divisions and projections. We know that at his most mysterious, God, one in three persons, is bound to the other, gives way to the other, exalts the other simultaneously and mutually. And likewise, everything that God does is inseparable. Well, all that is pretty abstract. We humans understand better if we attend to the Bible's accounts of what God does. The Gospel of John, for example, tells us that in the beginning, the light shines and the darkness cannot overcome it. It tells us that the light does not condemn the darkness, but in the face of its shining, the darkness condemns itself. The divine nature and the divine action are one. And in our world, which is diverse and confused, that one light of God has different effects, two effects. It illumines and it confronts, although the light of God is one and the same. What then are we to do with the language of divine anger? What does it mean when the Old Testament with some regularity, says that God is angry. Such language has provoked no small amount of theological pushback, as you can imagine, from the human side. First of all, there was pushback in the ancient world. God has no failures of reason, the ancients said. That's what they supposed a passion to be. He has no excess or imbalance He is immortal, invisible, only wise. Well, all of that is true, but still you and I need to be schooled here by the language of the Bible, which includes the language of the divine pathos. God, who is described in the prophets as in anguish over the unfaithfulness of his people, God who undergoes the greatest anguish of abandonment in the crucifixion of his son. And we as Christians must take that language with great seriousness. But that brings us to the second critique of divine anger from a more modern tenor. What kind of God would it be who is angry? Is that not just a projection of the worst abuses of our unjust human order. And if we don't want to say that God abuses, what, how much better is it to say that he is a masochist? Ancient and modern, human beings push back against this language. And the pushback is understandable, and yet it involves misunderstanding. And the reason you and I can say in confidence that these are misunderstandings is the person of Jesus Christ. There is no separating his love, holiness, justice, passion, and self-surrender. And that is because he is the son of God. His qualities are God's qualities. And that means that they too are one. Think of the prime passage of Christ's anger, which we just heard, the casting out of the money changers in the temple. As he throws out those who corrupt the worship of the people of God, you and I are meant to hear in our minds the words of the prophet Malachi, maybe with the strains of Handel in the back, hearing the Messiah. Who can abide the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? But if you and I reread Malachi, what else do we find there along with God's sudden and stern arrival in our world? We find there an end time call to the nations to come from the ends of the earth to worship the true God. We find the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. We find the final reconciliation of the generations after enmity. All these bright and hopeful realities are how the prophet also describes the terrible burning off of evil and injustice. What is divided in our evil age it is all one in the eternal nature of the loving God. How are we to think, as we do with Malachi, of the final times we might turn to Daniel? Surely Daniel's prophecy is also in our mind as we hear the cleansing of the temple. And there we find the abomination standing in the center of the temple. There we find a great battle over true sacrifice in the face of blasphemy, which finally points us to the cross of Jesus. But we also find the resurrection of the dead, the day of perfect justice, the coming of the nations, and the shining of the saints like stars. That is also what the battle looks like. What we call the anger of Jesus Christ, the righteous anger of God, It comes to us all clothed in suffering, self-surrender, holiness, humility, and justice. Jesus cleansing the temple. Who can separate it from his preserving a space for the Gentiles, us who are far from God? How could we separate it from the preparation of his own body by anointing before he is captured? or separate it from the allowing of himself to be taken by blasphemous guards or the speaking of truth as he sits on the judgment seat in powerlessness before the one who asks him, what is truth? These are also righteousness and the vanquishing of evil of a kind we will only see translucently on the last day. In his life and his death, the divine anger, promise, surrender, love, suffering, and invitation, we could no more separate them than we can separate sinew from muscle and bone and nerve in a living human being. Before I close, I want to sneak one more piece onto the chessboard. 1 Peter four seventeen. That verse tells us that the judgment of God is real. We cannot talk it into insignificance. But it comes first on the household of God. Which, folks, is us? For our ministries, we do answer how we invested our talents, whether we slept instead of awaiting the bridegroom. And as we listen to that passage, we realize that the Christian understanding of the divine wrath applies first to us, lest we wield it as a weapon against those we might oppose. But then we recall that we know ourselves, and we know how to reckon with ourselves only as we look at Jesus Christ. He shows us the love which is one with his righteousness and his passion which deals with our sin in himself even as he judges us. Only as we look at him do we have an inkling of what a human being is created to be and what we shall be in the end. And his anger is righteous altogether. And so to the judgment Peter speaks of, we submit. And this judgment we receive from the same one who in his dying took on the consequence of all of my sin. I welcome his judgment on me, for I know that he is the one who covers me as I stand before my father's throne. The two are inseparable and to my great benefit." There are certainly lots of moments when we as Christians in our daily lives are called to tell the truth about how corrupt this world of ours is and to stand against destructive and dishonest features in it. Doubtless there is some such moment in each of our lives now. So my question is this. Can you and I feel some approximation? of this true, pure, and righteous anger which Jesus Christ himself had. If the divine anger has a place in our doctrine of God and our doctrine of justification, does it have a place in our ethics too? There is a holy anger, but is there any plausible sense in which I consider it mine, especially in light of that passage from 1 Peter? Let us start here. In the world, God's world, rebellious world, God has willed that his word should have a place to dwell, and so his name. That place is the church of which you and I are living members. And as a result, we ourselves in our flawed lives witness to the presence of that word in the world. We are not that word We do not own it, quite to the contrary. But by his grace, God has put you and me here as cohabitants with it and its stewards. So part of the church's witness, then, is what we might call, I've just come back from England, minding the gap. Point out to the world the gap between God's justice and the world as we find it. That is part of our stewardship. With this calling ought to go an impatience for God's day. With this stewardship ought to go a horror for many features of the human rebellion and an affront. All the time we remember with St. Peter that you and I, we are part of that rebellion, that inertia, that incongruity. Mind the gap in your neighborhood, in the world, and also in yourself. It is, after all, Lent. This far, no further could we be said to share the divine anger, minding the gap is the closest we get. Anger, human and divine. With the psalmist, we say that your judgments, Lord, are good and righteous altogether. With Job, who knew a little bit about anger, we repent in sackcloth and ashes. Lord, come have your way with us. Send your spirit to burn us with your righteous love, though we be saved as through fire. Amen. Bring the divine anger first on the household of God. Let it burn us deeply as we plead your son as our fire guard on on your last day. Only then teach me to witness to the gap that I see evidently in the world. Only then let us have an inkling of what your passionate and indignant love is truly like. May your word be such a fire in our mouths, upon our lives, abroad in our world, you who are in your son reconciliation and peace. Amen.